Welcome to the Loveland Libcast, the official podcast of the Loveland Public Library. April is National Poetry Month. And on this episode of the Loveland Libcast, we are celebrating with our partners the Loveland Poet Laureate Program and the Columbine Poets Northern Chapter. The Loveland Poet Laureate Program and the Columbine Poets Northern Chapter are pleased to offer a free reading by three poets on Friday, April 1st, whose different backgrounds and current work emerge in poems full of attention to different cultures, to the world, and to the earth. Norwegian poet Rolf Jacobsen wrote that as we see and address issues in the world, the poet's job is to run ahead and bark. Audre Lorde said, Poetry is not only a dream and vision, it is the skeleton architecture of our lives. It lays the foundation for a future of change, a bridge across our fears of what has never been before. Denise Johnson, poet, essayist, short story writer, and novelist, wrote, A poem doesn't have to rhyme. It just has to remind you of things and wring them out of you. You are invited to gather around the storytelling fire to hear the poems of Autumn Bernhardt, Juan J. Morales, and Jacqueline St. Joan on Friday, April 1st at 7 p.m. in the Devereaux Room at the Rialto Theater Center. On Saturday, April 2nd at 10 a.m., Juan J. Morales will also be leading a workshop titled Deepening Your Poetic Voice in the Devereaux Room at the Rialto Theater Center. Both the reading and the workshop are free, but the workshop requires registration. You can visit thelovelandmuseum.org and choose the Program and Events tab underneath Events and Classes to register for the workshop. Thanks to our partners with the Loveland Poet Laureate Program and the Columbine Poets Northern Chapter, we are proud to be joined by Autumn Bernhardt, Juan J. Morales, and Jacqueline St. Joan on this very episode to read some of their poetry. We hope you enjoy. Autumn Bernhardt's artistic and academic work has appeared in a number of book collections, including Vision in Place, Tales from Six Feet Apart, Grazing the Fire, Bawajigan, Beyond Queer Words, and Blood, Water, Wind, and Stone. Among other things, Autumn Bernhardt has been a professor, a tribal attorney, a clerk for a judge, and has represented Colorado in U.S. Supreme Court litigation involving interstate rivers. From 2020 to 2022, Autumn served as Poet Laureate of Fort Collins, Colorado. More information can be found at Autumn Bernhardt on Instagram. Autumn Bernhardt, thank you for joining the Loveland Libcast. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. We're excited to have you on the podcast. And I wanted to start by asking you, when did you first start writing poetry? And how did you discover your love of poetry? I think really like I started loving poetry through country music. I would be in the back of like my folks' truck or in the back of the car and I'd be listening to like the song lyrics with my head as close to the speaker as possible and I'd be writing on my my leg, like my, my pants leg with my finger, like words from the songs and that was my first exposure. I know that's not necessarily for a lot of people like classic poetry, but that was my first exposure to anything lyrical and I absolutely loved it. And probably by the time I was in third grade, I had a really good teacher named Miss Hendricks and she kind of encouraged my love of poetry. And I was actually just going through some old boxes the other day and I found some of my poetry from about, I would say third grade. 
And I had written a poem about Pine Ridge because we had just gotten back from Pine Ridge. And it was pretty good, to be honest with you. Like, it's sometimes a little better than I was like, man, I wish I could write like this now. It was like, because I don't write a lot of rhyming poetry now, but I was writing like rhyming poetry back then. It was like four stanzas still on the left hand side of the column, like I still do it. And I was just going through, I was like, man, there was like, I was writing about stuff that I, I didn't know a third grader experienced, you know, and, and, so that was third grade. And then I think I, I dropped poetry. I mean, it was still there. I always kept a notebook and I was writing down little expressions and didn't really do anything with it. And then in college, I took a Spanish literature class and I was exposed to Neruda actually in Spanish. That's beautiful. He's one of my favorites. Absolutely. One of my fa all-time favorites. Body of a Woman, Heights of Machu Picchu, Poet's Obligation. I can write the saddest verses tonight. It just, I, I love Neruda. I was trying to be practical, so I went to law school and, and practiced, and it wasn't until probably, you know, 2015, I, had lo I lost a friend, and I took a lot of the stuff that I was writing in my journals, and I was like, I just feel like I have nothing to lose, and I just want what I'm feeling, like, so far away from me, and I ended up submitting some poetry to, like, a Canadian, like, indigenous magazine. It's grown substantially since that first issue. And I was just, I just want what I ever I want, what I'm feeling like in a different country. And, and they picked it up and that was my first poetry publication. And I just kept writing really from there. And that's really what, what changed it was that, that kind of that loss where I took it from my notebooks and actually, you know, made it visible. So had you been writing continuously, even though you weren't trying to develop into a practice and you had made a decision to go into law school, but it, had you kept writing poetry that whole time? It was very, very intermittent. I was so, I was trying to be practical and I was writing every day. I mean, writing was pretty much my everyday job. I was writing legal briefs and motions and interrogatories and post-trial briefs. And I was writing like literally from the start of the day to the end of the day. And then sometimes after hours and it just felt poetry felt so frivolous in a way to me and kind of toward the end of my career at the attorney general's office. I just sort of like, I remember like I was in like a hotel room in like Portland, Maine at a two week trial that was supposed to go longer than two weeks. And I had actually called up my wife and I was like, can you read Poets Obligation over the phone to me? Because I was just, I just needed something more in my life. And, you know, I think I've, I've been needing poetry for a long time, but I think I just have pushed it. I pushed it away until I couldn't push it away anymore. And so writing and being published in that magazine, is that really when your practice started to develop into a pursuit more for you? Yeah, it gave me some validation, like there's a place for this, like somebody thought it was worthwhile publishing. I was already writing a little bit then just to deal with like the emotional upheaval. And so, yeah, that I think that kind of started it. And there's been times when I've been writing more or less, but it's now a part of me. And when I don't do it, I feel like something's missing. And what's the best advice you have received about approaching or creating poetry? Oh, I have gotten a lot of good and bad advice. Uh, <laughs> and so it's hard to parse through even for me. There's a great book called Fear Slash Art that talks about just making, it's important to make a quantity of art because so little of your art is seen. And the more you make, the more chances you have of it being seen. 
And you also, you're in the flow of doing it where you're less self-conscious when you're focusing on like, I'm going to write a, a poem every single day. And there's a interesting book called Writing Down the Bones. She talks about, there's, she recommended writing with the masters. And I actually do this with Neruda, where you literally write line by line a poem of Neruda. And you, you experience it in a different way when you're writing it. I will say this is dangerous because I wrote it in my journal and I was like flipping back through looking for poems to publish. I was like, oh my goodness, I came across some lines. I was like, that is the best I have ever written in my life. I love this stuff. That was inspired. And then I kept flipping the page back and I saw, oh, that was my, my writing practice of writing with the masters. And so now when I do that, I highlight it, not my poem. I want to be inspired by it, but this is not mine. So that's, that's it. And then there's just a few quotes about writing that I keep with me. And these aren't, I wish I could give you the exact quotes, but there's a, a quote that says something like, writing is an act of hostility imposed upon an indifferent world. And that's kind of my writing approach. A few others, like one was by a quote by Anne Lamont, and I'm not going to get it exactly perfect, but she says, tell your stories, you own everything that happened to you. Then there's a last quote, and this is actually by Genghis Khan uh, that I also read in like a writing book. It was something like, I'm the flail of heaven. If God sent you to me, you must have committed great sins. So, you know, just to kind of free myself up for writing, I keep these, these practices on the, and quotes on, my, on the forefront of my mind. Thank you for sharing those. And speaking of sharing, now we're going to get to enjoy some of your poetry. All right. Uh, so the first poem that I brought is one called Before We Talk About Grazing. It was published in a book called Grazing the Fire, Poetry of Rangeland Science. And basically the entire book are poems that are in response to scientific papers, trying to make the scientific papers more accessible, more emotionally available. And so I wrote this poem uh, partly in response to the scientific paper, which was about basically tribal grazing practices, but also in response to my own experience. I grew up in a, a ranch family, essentially, agricultural community, and grew up rodeoing and working cattle and raised cattle myself for a, a lot of years. So this poem is just kind of convergence of like my own practice raising cattle. I used to also work for the White Mountain Apache tribe and they had a livestock association. So this is the poem before we talk about grazing. Before we talk about the future, we need to talk about the past. This land is marked with stories. They're in the washes after it rains, in the small undulations, in the rasp of desert breath. If we talk about us, we need to talk about them. The boss farmers up north, the boss ranchers down south, BIA paternalism everywhere. Before we talk about how we should graze as a tribe, as a local district, we need to talk about how they overgrazed. Scrape vegetation right off the surface. No regard for growth points, no regard for anything. And we need to talk about which of us we are talking about. Tribal politics, tribal politicians, tribal corruption. Tribal employees wanting to follow tradition and be good stewards. Oh, and did we mention the local politics of tribal politics? We need to talk about that too. Yes, it is good to consider how to graze, but the personality of the desert is always changing. She has and will always be here. We need to talk about the desert. Before we discuss grazing in the desert, though, we might need to talk a little bit more about before there were cattle, before there were Spanish missionaries, before loans and gifts, the new and old cattle economy, and how it all got started, the origin of things. 
and we definitely need to mention Indian cowboys. The old ones with experience and practice, the young ones sometimes uninterested, sometimes just uninvited. Indian cowboys studying at the tribal college and showing up for roundups. Then again, what about these Milgon theories? Do they respect Tio Himduk? Are they in harmony with the past, the present, the future, in the desert? Before we talk about science, before we talk about grazing, before we talk about elaborate methodologies, well, let's not talk about elaborate methodologies. Let's get to know each other. Before we talk about grazing, we need to talk about intergenerational trauma on people and on land. 500 years ago was just yesterday in the desert. 500 years ago was just yesterday in the heart. So that's before we talk about grazing. There's some T.O. words in there. I don't speak T.O. and I, I actually called up Ophelia Zapata, who's a famous indigenous poet, and asked her to help me pronounce those words. And I'm, not, I'm still not sure if I'm doing it right, but anyways. <laughs> the second poem is called Toto. It was originally published in the Yellow Medicine Review, along with another poem of mine called Joaquin Luta or Red Thunderbird. This poem I actually wrote when I was going through a breakup. And so I, it's very difficult for me. I felt like it was maybe easier to express myself in Lakota as well as English. And I'm not a fluent speaker of Lakota. I'm a, I'm a learner and I spent most of the quarantine actually like five days a week, sometimes six days a week getting together on Zoom with a lot of other Lakota speakers and, and learning. So I apologize if some of these words, I'm not pronouncing them correct. I, I mean well, and I, I, th I just think it's important that the language be spoken, but that's a little bit of the background behind the, this poem. Lila washte chaka, chanke yoinye, te wahila, o teke. But isn't love always expensive, especially when you say it in Lakota? For a very long time, lo ihan, then the world got older and so did we. Then some good came from the grief. Actually, I remembered a dream I had when I was younger. My path. Now it's all too complicated to explain in Lakota or English. Still we try hard and set appointments. Not certain if she sees it, though. I used to have the gift of prophecy, but I can't see the future just now. Chewati, wachewakie, but still many. Dokeshke lakotia laste yapihe. Wanuni, ishea nuni. They say wakin le pejuta washte akukte. This long winter, I'm drinking pejuta sapa and smoking pejuta trozi, but hoping for a little snow medicine too, to heal the fights, the distance, the tragic misunderstanding. I say to her, May we can sing it together with you forgetting all the words and me out of tune. I ask her, Please give me a little time. But I can bring you books and butterflies too. I still don't know what else to say to her in any other language other than, We are each other's history. And so like the last line of that poem is, these two teepees are blue. This third poem is a, is a very recent poem. I don't know if it's good or not, but I, I wrote it just a while back. It's called Swimming Dragon. It's just kind of, I won't really explain it because it's just, I'm not even sure what it's about yet. It's about what I'm going through right now. So Swimming Dragon. I shut my eyes rather than go blind. It's like watching sparks from a welder. 
like staring at the sky even after the eclipse is long past. The hot girl summer has burned into the long winter. The phoenix flame dances in a tiny mason jar. It wants to find more air. It wants to melt metal into concrete. It wants to blow glass into smoking curves. It's a man compelled, turning curves into math and angles. The lantern glow is decorated with green and red leaves. It comforts like maybe unfound touch. Pine needles combust under blankets of snow. Prayers explode under blankets of blue stars. Whatever happens this night to this little light, let it reincarnate into something simple and very wild. Whatever happens to this little swimming dragon, let it reincarnate into something that lives. This poem is called Red Thunderbird or Joaquin Luta. It was published also in Yellow Medicine Review, and then it was also published in a book called Beyond Queer Words. So Red Thunderbird or Joaquin Luta. Code switching and code talking, talking only to myself and the expert on cortisol, adrenaline, oxytocin, serotonin. But maybe we could talk about testosterone too. You know, just to get out of the way. Hearing the words, but only part, talking over the drum beat, talking over the mind churn. Red thunderbirds flying down the highway, I hear the beat of their wings. I ask for their help the way a thunder dreamer asks, by saying, I don't need no help. By saying, don't worry about me, I'm all sorts of safe from myself and from the world. Most things I don't know. Still there are things I know I need, like a new fleet vehicle that flies down the highway like a red thunderbird, with a red tail hawk feather on the rear view mirror, to remind me to seize things from the air. To get me back on the red road, the black road, or wherever I'm going lately. The smell of Ipswich pine, heartburn, and mind churn. The ups and downs of routines and vicious cycles. Only seven years till fluency. Only 10,000 hours till mastery. And days and days of flashcards with Suzecha and Hoka on them. There's sore and compromise, and I'm talking to all the single mothers I know. Once broken, a couple times heart broke. Wondering if they know about my perpetual heartbreak. My whole plan for the future right now is portable enough to be seized and burn up. My life is in the notebooks, and I'm dragging the fringed helo moccasins to cover my tracks, waiting for a red thunderbird to pick me up. Autumn Bernhardt, thank you so much for sharing your poetry. We really appreciate you being on the Loveland Libcast, and hope people are excited to go to the reading on April 1st. And where would you like to direct people to read more of your poetry or to hear more of it? I have had quite a few things published online. So if you just kind of Google my name, search my name, some stuff will come up on YouTube. That's mostly spoken word, but there's also some written poetry as well, some audio clips of poetry if you just kind of search for my name. I have some poetry broadsides from two different poems of mine available right now before we talk about grazing and Red Thunderbird or Joaquin Luta. And those are available at Wolverine Farm in Fort Collins old firehouse books. I'm trying to get it, them in as many coffee shops really as possible. And I'm a little bit off of social media right now, but maybe I'll be back on and you can connect with me at Autumn Bernhardt on Instagram. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for being on the Loveland Libcast. Yeah, I appreciate it. Juan J. Morales is the son of an Ecuadorian mother and a Puerto Rican father. He's the author of three poetry collections, including The Handyman's Guide to End Times, winner of the 2019 International Latino Book Award. Recent poems have appeared in literary magazines, including Crazy Horse, The Laurel Review, Breakbeats Volume 4, Latin Next, Acentos Review, Collateral, Terrain.org, Pank, and Poetry. He is a Canto Mundo Fellow, a Macondo Fellow, the editor-slash-publisher of Pilgrimage Press, 
and Professor of English, as well as Associate Dean of the College of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences at Colorado State University, Pueblo. Juan J. Morales, thank you so much for joining the Loveland Libcast. Thanks for having me, Daniel. It's good to see Slash be on the audio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. I wanted to start our conversation by asking you, when did you first start writing poetry and how did you discover your love of poetry? So when I did my undergraduate degree in college at Colorado State University down in Pueblo, down here in Pueblo, Colorado, and I grew up in Colorado Springs, and I used to play in a, in a, in a goofy punk ska band in the 90s. And when I kind of discovered I wasn't going to continue being a musician, I kind of discovered in the process of college and that that the love of word, the love of playing with rhythms and, and, and everything like that. And just kind of the natural aspect of storytelling that kind of came from my family because my my parents were, are, you know, they were really great. They are and were great storytellers. And so poetry just kind of seemed like a good melding of all these different kind of background experiences and felt like a, just a great way to express myself, you know, the same way that we see a lot of great writers throughout the, the nation community especially in the Colorado in the Colorado community there's so many great writers and poets here so did your poetry writing practice did it really start with music and kind of develop it almost as a lyrical format and then become more you know what we think of as traditional poetry writing that's a great question I like I said I I, I kind of discovered pretty quickly that I wasn't I wasn't going to continue my career as a musician I I was more like a, a goofy frontman kind of guy. And, you know, I was talking to a friend recently and we were kind of talking about how poets are, and maybe, the, maybe there's always an exception to the rule, but that there's a lot of poets that are really organized. So when I was kind of in those band days, I was like the organized one. So I kind of was like, you know, like I was really organized. So I did a good job of that. And then they're kind of like, you can kind of sing. So that's fine. So the lyrical aspects of it kind of fused together really well with storytelling because as you'll see, or as some people know, my poetry is very narrative based. I, I, I like to kind of tell stories. I like to meander and kind of have fun with that, that aspects of poetry. How did your poetry practice develop? And what does it look like these days? So I, you know, I went, I, you know, I was very fortunate to have some really strong mentors and kind of over the years, I've made a lot of great friends that are good writers and collaborators that have kind of just given me great wisdom over the years. And I think one of the constants that has always been a part of my practice is that I always like to journal. My handwriting is terrible. So the the horrible handwriting and writing up writing the first draft of things by hand kind of gives it that kind of raw, unrefined opportunity for potentiality. So you can kind of discover ways to see what works, see what doesn't work, and then kind of revise and polish and and just keep trying things, take some risks on on the work. And so usually from there I'll I'll type it up, polish it and and kind of see what fits, see what clicks. And then, you know, like when, when you when you when you write a collection of poetry, it's also fun because you can kind of I guess there is that kind of fun theme of music since we're kind of on the audio is when you're putting a book together. I, I was also drawn to that kind of idea of a mixtape. You're kind of like you're kind of putting together like movements and arcs and kind of a of an, a, an experience. But at the same time, you want to have like a good poetry collection kind of have individual poems that kind of stand on their own. So like if, you know, some people like to read poetry books by just flipping through and coming to a poem and reading that, that independent experience. So I do my best when I, when I'm working on poetry to kind of have, have that kind of balance of the independent contained poem and then the part of the larger work as well. And you mentioned having some great mentors. What's the best, or is there a best bit of advice about poetry writing or the, even the creative process that you've received over the years? 
that's a great question. So, so many kinds of things. I, th- I think like if I was, if I were to boil down the advice from like two, my two mentors that I'm thinking about is, you know, there's different times and places in the, in the writing process, like early on in the process, you should just kind of be open, free and, and, and excited to explore. And then when you get to the later stages of the work, then kind of be harsh, be critical to yourself and, and kind of make it as strong as possible. I Sometimes I think just kind of getting that order is an important thing. And I think the other great thing about poetry is that, you know, poetry is like a, a lot about compression. It's a lot about that kind of brief snapshot in an emotion, in a time, in a place. And so just kind of enjoying that snapshot that you're kind of trying to, to accomplish and just letting that small moment carry you. Thank you for sharing that. And now, if you would please share some of your poetry with us. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, I'm I'm going to read two poems and the first poem I'm going to read is it's from my second collection which was called which is called The Siren World. It was published by Lithic Press, which is a great indie press from northwestern Colorado in the, in Fruta, Colorado. I always like to give a good shout out to the uh, the local independent publishers that are out there doing the good work for sure because they make beautiful books. They have a beautiful bookstore in Fruta, so if you're ever out there taking in the the nature, the landscapes and getting some good peaches or pizza or whatever you stop by there as well anyway this poem is called gift take the middle-aged man in an albuquerque laundromat who once asked me about my ancestry and boasted of his 15th generation spanish heritage held on tracts of land he had to claim to in new mexico or spain i don't remember which when i tell him my parents never taught me spanish he instructs me with the condescending click of a tongue to learn his tone enough to redden my face like a slap he would have obliged when I already implicate myself enough in the form of awkward conjugations and the repeated phrase of como se dice. Thinking about it now, this man showed me how we can associate ourselves with one side and deny the conquered half. I wish I could ask him now if he knows how we can forgive the culmination in our struggle through words and idiomas. Bestowed with identical names, the forgotten family are doppelgangers wearing similar expressions in weathered photos, high cheekbones, and stares of the denied indigena. I look into their eyes by staring in the mirror and witness the wounds of younger days I regret collecting. When I was 14 and asked if we had Indian blood inside my mother's point-blank answer, no. Even then, I didn't believe. Angry, she didn't understand why it mattered to recognize two bloods swirled together while I didn't consider how concealing the indigena protected her growing up in Ecuador. To forgive the native within, to smother origins in denial, are adopted habits from times before I knew how to track a pen into words. I think about my confusion, bearing me on a line drawn in the sands, knowing it will be erased by a rising tide. And then I turn again to write future and past pressed together as the skin we wish to crawl out of, but we have to accept as a gift. So you can kind of tell that I like to write a lot about my, about culture and heritage. And so that poem kind of covers that ground. And when I am visiting the Loveland area in, at the beginning of April, I'm going to plan to read some new stuff, kind of share some newer work from uh, the fourth book that I'm working on. But in the meantime, for today, the second poem I'm going to share with you all is, is from my third poetry collection, which is called The Handyman's Guide to End Times. It's a collection of zombie home improvement love poetry. You know, poetry is always fun because you can kind of take the, the mix of metaphors, the mix of, of all kinds of things. And 
when I visit Loveland, I'm going to be, I'm going to be sharing, you know, there's, there's kind of this theme and focus, focus on witness and poetry witness. And, I'm, you know, there's, there's a lot of zombie poems in here. I haven't really witnessed these things, you know, maybe, maybe like on the movie screen and things like that. But I think over the, uh, over the past two years, you can kind of get the feel of, of some kind of apocalyptic feels. So I'm going to read a Pueblo poem because I'm, I live in, uh, I live in, in Pueblo, Colorado in the South and yeah. So I want to represent our, our geography and region. I think the title, a lot of times I think great poetry kind of just does the heavy lifting itself. The title does, the, hopefully does some of the work. So it's called Handyman Imagines the Battle of Pueblo. When everyone has turned to biting each other, to emptying every grocery store in town and to sieging out the end times, we don't know why we didn't leave for the mountains in our earshots. Our feet got dirty enough in vacant lots and beat up streets with road cones coaxing us to leave this rest stop town. The heat challenged our souls to keep it together, hopeful for afternoon rains to nourish gardens hidden in Bessemer backyards. We used to feast at Eastside Tacarillas on one-way streets. We used to bike through the avenues to slip downtown through alleys, graffiti fresh, finding our way to where the river paralleled limestone barrens and levee murals for local gods that once stretched into sunsets. We want the mill to spew yawns all night, coal trains to whistle, crashes of train cars loading again, so we fortify and we clear out the dead to make this home again. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to share my work. Absolutely. Juan J. Morales, thank you so much again for being on this episode of the Loveland Libcast. I hope people are looking forward to seeing your reading on April 1st and then also registering for that workshop if they want to want help with their own poetry and want to further their own practice. Is there any any place else you'd like to direct people to read more of your poetry or hear more of your work? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of those, I'm one of those poets and writers that are kind of saying like, oh, I'm, I've been meaning to build a website for a long time and, and all this other stuff. So I'm, I'm definitely continuing that path sincerely. In the meantime, I think you can follow me on Twitter at Morales Juan J. And then I think I'm on Instagram. I think, I think it's Juan Morales 579. So yeah, I, th- I think I'll, I'll stick with that. But also if you do a little Googling with Juan J. Morales poetry, you can find some recent works, especially newer work that hasn't that, that's coming from the new book as well. All right. Thank you. And thanks again for being on the podcast. Real pleasure, Daniel. Thank you. <laughs> Jacqueline St. Jones award-winning fiction, essays, scholarship, and poetry intersects the fields of law and literature with contemporary and historical voices. Her novel, My Sister's Made of Light, finalist for the Colorado Book Award in Literary Fiction, is a compelling, heartbreaking, and sometimes terrifying look into the social, political, and religious maze that is Pakistan. She recently placed first in prose and lyrical poetry in the 2021 contest of Columbine Poets of Colorado, and in 2015 she was chosen as Poet of the Year for Ziggy's, Denver's oldest blues club. A former lawyer, judge, and law professor, She has a master's in creative writing and is working on a collection of family fiction, the first story of which was published in the Missouri Review, and a second is forthcoming next month in April in Valley Voices. 
Jacqueline St. Joan, thank you for joining the Loveland Libcast. Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate being invited. And I want to also express my gratitude to the Loveland Public Library. Absolutely. We're just so thrilled to have you on for this episode to help us celebrate National Poetry Month. And we're excited about your upcoming reading. And I want to start by asking you, when did you first start writing poetry? And how did you discover your love of poetry? Well, do you remember when you first heard poetry. It was probably in grade school, right? Yeah, 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 that's right. So, you know, I had an ear for it early on, and I think most kids do. But in terms of turning to it as a form of art, it really was a lot later. I was active in the second wave of feminism during the 1970s, and it was a very exciting time artistically. There was a lot of publishing, a lot of poetry, and all kinds of work that was going on. And so I was influenced by a lot of those poets of, of that era, and, and I followed quite a few of them. I'm thinking Judy Gron in particular, as well as Marge Piercy and Pat Parker and so many others. And I think that's when my love for it really developed. But I was a single mom, and I was going to school, and I was developing a career in law, which I had. And it really wasn't until my kids grew up and they went off to college, and I had a steady job. I was actually a county judge in Denver for about 10 years. And I spent the time and my work listening to people's stories all day, and I could hear the poetry in them, you know? And I I could hear the music. Let me read this for you. This is an artist statement that I wrote that's part of, it's on the back cover of my uh, my book of poems, which is called What Remains. I believe the power of poetry lies in its play of time and memory with music and meaning. This collection, I'm referring to this particular book, presents traces of a life that was conceived at the end of World War II and has lived in its aftermath. Who are we, we ask? And scraps of experience rain down. Remnants are stored in the senses. The sound of a father's clarinet running scales or inhaling ants along with fragrant peonies of childhood, or the burn of racism in a mother's recoiling touch. How does one read the tea leaves of a public life, the dregs of a crime story after you've drained the glass and thrown the paper away? What is it that's red on your fingers and exactly who is petting the cat? Those are remnants from my life of memories that have meaning for me. Now, whether they have meaning for someone else is the work of poetry. So really, it was in the late 1980s after my kids were grown and I had a steady job and I began to to focus more. I had vacation times and I began to go to poetry conferences. I actually, my father died and I, and I mentioned that because there was something about his death that prompted me to begin writing. And actually what I began writing was the story of the week that he died. But what came out of that was my desire to explore writing. And I went to a writer's conference in Aspen that year, and I signed up for a nonfiction workshop because it was kind of a memoir I was writing. But in the evenings, the poets came out and read, and I fell in love with poetry that at that time. So that's when I began signing up then for poetry classes and going to conferences. I applied for workshops. I applied for residencies. And really for the next, hmm, that was the 80s, for the next 25, 30 years, I was able to experience teaching from a wide range of wonderful poets until finally after I left my job, I resigned from the bench in the late 90s. And I I went to University of Colorado and got a a master's in poetry and creative writing. And so that gave me yet more perspective from which to begin, well, which to continue writing. So 
I don't know if that answers a question. I, I write fiction. I write nonfiction. I've published all of those, but basically poetry is my home. Thank you for sharing that poem as well. That that does <laughs> that does answer my question. And would you say that that was when you stepped down from the bench and you enrolled at the University of Colorado? Is that is that really when your practice started developing where you wanted to publish or you know you wanted to see where that could take you as kind of a profession? Yeah, although I think I thought of it not so much as a profession as a practice that naturally you want to share with other people. So that leads to public speaking and readings and publishing and community. And uh, being part of the poetry community has been really important to me. Thank you for that. And then we are going to get to hear some of your poetry. But before we get to your poems, I also wanted to ask you, what is the best advice that you have received about <laughs> approaching or creating poetry? You know, that's a great question. And um, one of the poets I fell in love with really early on that I was mentioning earlier was is a poet named Olga Brumas. She's a, a Greek-American poet. She said to us, silence is to poetry as a dark room is to photography. So for me, learning to listen to the silence was the beginning. So the best I can explain it is that it's not meditation, but I think it's it's a related kind of activity where one goes to the edge of what you know and you listen and you look until you start to know something new or something else. Maybe all you hear, maybe you just hear a sound, or maybe you see something, an image, a line that you can use that then takes you someplace. So it's that kind of what they call not knowing and uncertainty and being between things and that can allow you to say something you didn't know you had to say. So I think that's the best advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As opposed to going to a workshop where everybody criticizes your work. <laughs> right. No, that, yeah, that really does resonate with me as someone who has some creative practices himself. So yeah, so you that, know. I, I really enjoyed yeah, hearing that. I think it applies to any kind of creative work. If you know too much what you want to say, it's, you know, you may get something on this canvas or you may get something on the paper, but it's not going to be anything fresh. And now we are fortunate enough to be able to hear some of your poetry. Okay. Well, I decided to read you some poems about poetry since it's National Poetry Month. And I went looking and I actually found three that I've written about poetry. So, I mean, this is a short one called Poetry is an Act of Love. And it's a pantoum, which is a Malaysian form. So you'll hear some repetition in it that's on account of following that form. Poetry is an act of love. To love a country is to know its poets. Is there a soul of a human being in there? Pure uncertainty yearns in a minor key. Going out to get a poem is like hunting. Is there the soul of a human being in there? Miles Davis said, don't play what you know, play what you hear. Going out to get a poem is like hunting. It is what the mind takes hold of. Don't play what you know, play what you hear. It is what the mind takes hold of. To love a country is to know its poets, as if poetry were an act of love. That's an old poem. This is a newer one I wrote just in the last few months. And the title is Simultaneously the Body. And there's an epigraph by Bertolt Brecht, quote, They won't say the times were dark. Rather, why were their poets silent? 
It is a place of closed lips, of sound not sounding inside the inner mouth, the cheeks, the soft palate, and the hard one, bony with little meat. The lazy tongue lies there muscled and lonely, its taste buds longing for a bite of meaning. First there is a wild heartbeat. Then the mind clears like a windy night sky. The nose sniffs fear. Still the brave right nostril inhales and the left one stands by. They are like two young boys climbing the walls of a cave. One holds the rope and one finds an open pit. They both fall into it. The breath holds on and lets go, waiting for the brain upstairs and the heart downstairs to find each other, to do it all together, ideas, images, and sounds merging like good sex, like an orchestra or a choir, like a tempestuous crowd with a righteous leader. The body eager in its many pieces and the mind eases in its only one as the network of nerves signals calm and a single word emerges from its womb, rides the channel of a windpipe into the nose and the word fills the channel of throat, the tongue rolls over in its wet bed, flexes itself against the back of teeth, the lungs contract, another breath pushes the word forward while simultaneously the body expands for the next word and the poet speaks. And this is a letter I wrote to a poet. <laughs> so it also is about poetry. It's called Letter to Muriel Rukeyser at the end of the 20th century. Muriel Rukeyser, she was Louis Rukeyser's sister, if you know who he was. She was a poet who, well, her, some of her history is in here, but she wrote in the 40s, 50s, and into the 60s. So she's a, a modernist. Your poems shock the way water lilies burning in a museum shock the moneyed with fragrant trees and you beg even the rich to understand as you spoke to each generation as that generation. Your dark hair curled in the 30s by a passion electric for justice. You named what we were taught to despise in the stone insanity of the first century of world wars. You said clitoris and you said penis and with the reverence of the condemned you said asshole peeling off the mask of Orpheus, speaking to the yet unborn, admitting to the torn life, begging, please, no more mythologies. You made contact like a pilot to a radio tower, the shaking wheels of your single engine extending to touch down. And when the young were going and going to war to war, you slurred your words on the Senate floor with thousands of others jailed, one half your limbs stroked out in the fire of your brain, those slurring leaves of water lilies stepping stones to the cloud of the world. You, the bastard mother, worried incessantly for the world, named it every way you could, then laid out the arousals and climaxes of yes, just looking at another woman, looking back at you. As for us, the young still go to war, and wars continue at the speed of darkness. Not the world wars you expected, but the others. Wars of despisals in our countries, in our cities, in other countries and cities. Promises and solidarity collapsed. And in the confusion, justice circles this sweating, fragile planet, looks for somewhere to land. A voice flew out of the river, smoke of the poems we still try to write. We too are more or less insane, even now, through time, as we witness the buried life at the end of this millennium. We are still writing our poems, born as we were in the first century of the aftermath of world wars. 
And finally, I mentioned um, the second wave of feminism and being active in the, back in the 70s. And this poem comes out of that. This is a prose poem. It won first prize in the Columbine Poets of Colorado prose poetry category last year. And it's called A Tour of East Colfax Avenue, Denver, Colorado, circa 1974. To wander East Colfax Avenue in the 1970s is to be young, female, angry, and ripe. A June tomato planted early reddens on the vine, splits open and bleeds. It runs down your leg and stains the street. You don't stop. You don't wipe. You let it remain to remind us of the disappeared women, to remember Joanne Little, the inmate who refused the guard in the prison kitchen with an ice pick. You stop to look in a storefront window between Race Street and Vine. It is woman-to-woman -woman bookstore, where more ideas are born on the stuffed sofa in the basement than there are books on the shelves. Sniff the fresh carpentry. Leave late after Saba's judo class. Stop by the satire lounge and sit on the kitchen side, where Flacco smothers burritos with sour cream and green chili, and Linda serves it up. Watch out. Plate is hot. This is a time that exists in our mouths, the melting cheese of desire and the hot peppers of language. You are licking your fingers, young and inky. You are fired up, hey, hey, ho, ho, patriarchy has got to go. You are hawking our monthly newspaper at 9th and Corona. Big Mama Rag, pages and pages of women on the rag, on the rage, on the rag Mama Rag. Her mother's, her words, her glory, and her size. The fact that she is alive and sells for 25 cents. An underground newspaper, literally, she has arisen from a basement on Gaylord Street. Once the FBI paid an informant to burgle that office, trash files, pour glue in your Smith Corona, it put Big Mama on the front page and our badass Congresswoman Pat Schroeder pushed Congress to investigate. Now, forget Gaylord Street and join the tour. Take a ride on Colfax with hundreds of others to take back the night. Pass the porn parlor and the strip joints. After all, it is US 40 in the city, and hey, there's Sid King himself, egging on the hecklers as a pack of dykes steps up to face them off. Lavender t-shirts, tiny tits, tight jeans, uh, mm, mm, mm. On your right, the Immaculate Cathedral, as expected, turns its back on us as we march by. However you dress, wherever you go, yes means yes and no means no. But it needn't have bothered as each cross street disappears when we pass by on Colfax. We lead an invisible parade of passion and principles that marches still, something that is a permanent marker on the asphalt, embossed on the avenue itself. It stains your fingertips after you read it, and you can't get it off you. Why would you want to? And why even try? Jacqueline St. Joan, thank you again so much for reading your poetry and having this conversation with us. Is there anywhere you would like to direct people who want to learn more about what you're up to these days or even see some of the work that you've already produced? Well, I do have a website, which is Jacqueline St. Joan. Um, no caps, no periods, no spaces, JacquelineStJoan.com. And you can read a lot of my work there. I basically foreground my work and background myself on that website. So you can read things that have been published. I have a book of poems called What Remains that you can order on that website. I have a short story coming out next month in a journal called Valley Voices, which comes out of Mississippi. And that is called Mississippi Goddamn is the name of that story. And then I have a novel that my second novel will be published this summer by Golden Antelope Press. All right. And then folks should absolutely 
come to the reading on April 1st and get some more poetry. I'm looking forward to it. It's always fun to read with those two. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. And thank you again for being on the Loveland Libcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Loveland Libcast. If you'd like to contact us about the podcast, please reach out to Daniel at daniel.tate at cityofloveland.org. That's D-A-N-I-E-L dot T-A-T-E at cityofloveland.org. See you next time.